All right, I invite you as always to turn to your scriptures and open up. We're looking at the Gospel of John, otherwise known as the fourth gospel. We have the three synoptic gospels that had been written much earlier. Those three writers now long gone, and John being the last of the 12 remaining apostles who has been pressed upon by those in his sphere of influence to write another yet, as they called it, a spiritual gospel. And I think that we've experienced some of that spiritual nature of this gospel. Not that the others are unspiritual. They're definitely spirit-filled eternal words in their accounts as well. This is the word of God after all, but this is unique in a sense, in a sense in which John, at his late stage in life, and his far more extensive now calling as an apostle has more that he understands, we can assume. More, uh, since the other Gospels have been around for quite some time, he's very, very familiar with them. He's supplementing that now. He doesn't need to repeat the biography of Jesus and the genealogies and a number of other things that are in, capably in the synoptics. And so you can see that John has confidence in the Synoptic Gospels because he writes something to stand together with them, to supplement them, and he has a lot more to add and to say that is definitely complementary with theirs. And so we're looking at a very important part of text. I mean, this entire Gospel is very powerful indeed, but this section, which is the centerpiece, of course, is... John 3.16, probably, arguably, the most commonly known uh, verse in all of Scripture, in all the country. And so we're treading on holy ground here. So there's a lot I feel compelled to study with regard to the, uh, the essence of God and understanding Him as a whole and not in His parts and not just looking at love as we would narrowly define that, but we, we want to really put our thinking caps on. We've memorized, we've known of this first, we've known of the love of God in sending His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, and those who simply believe will not perish and have eternal life. And we've come here to drill down deeper. We want to go deeper. This is only one occasion as we're going through this entire gospel, this entire 21 chapters, to spend on this particular verse and its surrounding context. He's the context, of course, he's talking to Nicodemus, who's a ruler of the Jews, as the text says. He's a Pharisee. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. He's very, very bright. He's on the level, if, if, if he's not even officially a scribe, he's very much a scribe in terms of his understanding of the law of God. And so he knows the Mosaic law very well and very fastidiously has committed himself to a life of following the Mosaic law. So he knows the law, and perhaps this is why providentially God has allowed this particular story to end in his eter- to end up and show up in his eternal record as inspired in the eternal word of God, because you can't find somebody in human in a human sense who knows the scriptures better, perhaps, than Nicodemus. And yet he completely misunderstands and has missed the Messiah and has missed 
what God's intention was, even with the Mosaic law. He's missing God. He's defining him very narrowly in a very dry, wooden fashion that men will do apart from the true living dynamic of the living Christ in more of a relational form than instead of a a repeated agenda, some kind of set of laws and system of ethics that we're to live by and do our best at. No, we knew, we know we fail. And Paul understood that's why in his conversion experience that God gave us the law of Moses. It's one of the greatest dispensations of his grace to show us that it's quite literally impossible for us to keep. I think that's the intrigue at this point that sends Nicodemus on to go at night. We don't know if it's because he doesn't want to be seen or if it's less crowded around Jesus. We talked about all of that, but there he is. And so we notice that it's now turned from a dialogue sort of an interrogative of you know how can a man be born again you must be born from above is what jesus is saying don't marvel nicodemus that i'm saying you must be born from above you should understand that your heart is a stone being very familiar of course with the prophet ezekiel in ezekiel 36 26 and 27 that i i who's speaking there you can speak God, I, God, am taking out that heart of stone. And what am I doing? Putting in a beating heart, a heart of flesh. I need to make you alive. You can't do that yourself. Can you do open heart surgery on yourself? No. And you had nothing to do with your physical birth. You have nothing to do with your spiritual birth. It has to be born from above. Well, where does that come from and who does it? It's It's the spirit. He's like the wind. We don't know from whence it comes or where it goes. In other words, this is another way of saying it's the prerogative of whom? Of God. This is God's prerogative. He's come down. He's sent his son to recapture something that belongs to him, Nicodemus. And that's up to him. So we now Nicodemus is finally silent and Jesus Contends now into his teaching mode. It's become didactic. He's trying to elaborate further still for Nicodemus. And Nicodemus, we can assume, is dumbstruck. I have no idea what you're talking about, but there's something fascinating about this. Something's grabbing me, and I don't know what it is. Indeed. And we think that there was a point at which he was, in fact, safe because he defends, in chapter 7 of John, defends... Jesus having the right, doesn't our law say that a man should give a defense before we judge him? So why is he doing that? See, God's doing something there with Nicodemus, isn't he? So we're looking at this particular portion, For God So Loved the World, in four parts. We got through the first two parts. The source of all love is who? I, give it away, I gave it away by saying who. <laughs> right, so it's God. For God, we started there with the verse. We're breaking down verse 16. For God, we stopped there to say that if he hadn't loved us, what? We wouldn't have loved, known how to love anyone except ourselves in a fallen way, in a fallen state. So all love comes from God. The second thing we looked at from uh, so love the world is the sphere of God's love. 
the scope of it. How broad is this love? Is it just for his elect? Is it just for those people whose names he wrote in the book of life and, and gave those names and placed them in the very heart of his son to go and be a propitiation for? Who does he love? He loves the whole world. He loves the, he created it. It belongs to him. It's his right to love it in whatever form or fashion that he desires. It's us who spoiled the creation, yeah? So we, can, we should be grateful that he has a love for the world, that he would send his son, and to have that forerunner say when he shows up as a man on this planet in, 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 housed in flesh, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Praise God. That gives my family members hope. It gives my neighbors hope, the people we work with hope. And we don't lose that hope, do we? We don't fuss over, well, I guess they weren't elect because they don't really. God loves these people. He loves all people. He came to all people with the gospel. And all they need do is what? Believe it. And yet, do they? Everyone? Sadly, tragically, they do not. But that's the scope and that's the grandeur and glory of God showing the breadth, the immeasurable breadth and scope and vastness of his love. We're the ones, because we're in a finite concept, who limit that. Well, I can understand his love if it's for, and we fuss and parse over what he accomplished on the cross. He came to take away the sins of the world. So God so loved the world. So third and fourth this morning, we're going to look at, first of all, the sacrifice of God's love. So we've looked at the source of God's, or source of all love, and that's for God. And the sphere or scope of God's love so loved the world, the cosmos, the entire world. And now the sacrifice of God's love. It was 12 o'clock when I got to this point last week. I'm, I'm not going to start that point now. <laughs> I'm sorry, folks. I'm not going to do it. I, I, it's, it's this, I'm telling you, this is holy ground. And still this, the, the, the tyranny of the clock that he gave his only son. Fourth, this morning, hopefully, the surety. And that's what we definitely want to get to. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. What else do we need to rest in? So, the place I want to start is in theology proper. I want to, I want to start with the essence of God. There's some things we need to understand. So I hope you've had your coffee. We want to spend some time looking at this ontological issue of the essence of God, the being of God as it relates to love. But these are things that are so intertwined and woven together that it, it behooves us to look at. We're going to look at three this morning in this introduction because God is, after all, a complexity. God is a complexity and because we have to think sequentially or we have to place things in boxes categorically, that's how we think. 
we forget sometimes that that complexity needs to be viewed in what? It begins with a U. Unity, yes. Unity. Because here, O Israel, the Shema, the Lord your God is how many? One. Well, wait a minute. It's a triune God, though. That's one and three. How do you work that math out? But we, we don't want to miss that God presents himself as a whole being. When he looks at you, does he look at you according to some list of your attributes? <laughs> and we should try not to as well. We should muster all that we can to see what Scripture has to say as it relates to the topic where we are this morning, centered piece of all of redemptive history. And that is that God so loved the world. How much? That he gave his only son that we might not perish but have eternal life. So here we go. First of all, you're not going to fully understand the love of God if you don't understand the goodness of God. I touched on this last week. I want to go a little further. I'm going to add another one. These, there's three that are primarily the essence of God. They're, they're, they're not a listed attribute like mercy and, and grace, things like that. No, these are who God in is, is in his essence. And it has to be viewed this way. Goodness, love, and purity. Those need to be taken together. You'll never understand either one if you pull them apart. If you parse that apart, you're pulling apart the being, the essence, the very essence of God. So let's dig in. So the goodness of God is a state of his being or his nature, right? But it's a state of being that produces, and I mentioned this word last week, benevolence. It, benevolence is something that is concerned about the, the happiness, the prosperity, and the spiritual, physical well-being of another. That's what benevolence is. So the goodness of God always speaks to all of the ancient Hebrews, everybody throughout Scripture that knew theology well, always understood the goodness of God as his benevolence. That is, by nature, he can't not do that. He can't be something else because that's who he actually is. Just like God is love. It's part of who he is. So this benevolence idea that he is most desiring the happiness and the spiritual and physical well-being of another person or, or, or of people and their prosperity as well. So that's when you're being benevolent, that's what that looks like. It's absolutely outside of yourself toward others. That's who God is. So because of that, it produces acts of beneficence. Do you remember the two words? Beneficence means I'm doing good works. I'm doing acts that flow out of who I am. See, if you're going to write one note down, write this down. Doing must flow from being. Not because it's perfunctory, Nicodemus. Not because the law of Moses states it. I don't go to church because I need to check that box. I don't have my devotional because I need to check that box. I go because I want to meet with Jesus Christ. I want to know him. I want to draw as close as I can to him. 
I want to walk with him. I like what John Frame has an excellent, excellent tome on the doctrine of God. And here's what he says about goodness. What is God's goodness? Is it something in him? It would be more accurate, I think, to say that the divine goodness, though it sounds like an abstract property, is really just a way of referring to everything that God is. Everything that God is. So we, it's really hard not to start making lists, isn't it? It's like, no, the, he's all goodness. He's all love. He's all purity. All at the same time, those things are inextricably woven together, and we err when we start listing or thinking things in separate form. He goes on here. Though it sounds like an abstract property, it's really just a way of referring to everything that God is. For everything God does is good, and everything he is is good. All his attributes are good. All his decrees are good. That's how you can embrace Romans 8.28 that you memorized. Everything means what? Everything. Not just the stuff that we've deemed good. And that, what just happened to me, what just was inflicted on me, wrongly spoken of me, that's bad. He hasn't given us license to make those calls because he is goodness. So if he's ordained something, it's good. If he's allowed for an earthquake to shake cities till they're rubble, till close to 50,000 people lose their life, is that good or bad? You don't want to say, do you? Hmm. That's why we need this lesson. We need to thank, as Rutherford said, we need to get to the point where we actually can thank the Lord for his hammer, his file, and his furnace. Understanding this, that God is good and he's wise and he knows what to do. Because he's good, he's benevolent. So he's interested in your prosperity, your physical and spiritual well-being. And listen to this, he's interested in your happiness. So the degree to which we default on understanding these things about God is the degree to which we diminish our ability to be happy. By the way, that's what blessed means. It just means happy. It just means happy. It means that God is putting some things on my plate that I'm my estimation, my determination is I cannot endure. It's my choice. Isn't it? God's. So by far, the most common meaning of goodness in Scripture, whether it's Tov in the Hebrew or it's uh, Agathos, we get the name Agatha from it, in the Greek means benevolence. It's a good person who acts in good works toward another person for those three areas, for their prosperity their spiritual and physical well-being, and for their happiness. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to say this. I'm not going to whatever, because it will make someone unhappy. Do we concern ourselves with that enough? Not enough. Not enough. Whose happiness do we drive full speed after? Our own. Our own. 
I'm glad you're willing to fess up. Help me fess up myself. So God is the chief example of goodness. God's goodness, he goes on, is the standard for our goodness. We are to image the, his goodness. God relates to us as a whole person, not just a collection of attributes, end quote. And we shouldn't do that to him when we try to imagine him. It's easier for us. We like shortcuts, but in God's sake, we better be careful with that, right? Psalm 52, verse 1, the goodness of And in the NAS, it says the steadfast love of God endures forever. The goodness is in the New King James. The NAS says steadfast love. What's the difference? None. That's what we're talking about here. A lot of things start coming together to form who your God is. And we shouldn't pull them apart goodness or steadfast love of course in the hebrew is hesed hesed means favor good deeds kindness mercy pity do you see how it's interwoven with things that define love as well you can't separate the two you have to look at the goodness of god together with trying to understand the love of god and why are those worthy pursuits because you're in you're an image bearer yeah You bear his image. If you want to know how to love another person the way Jesus wants you to love them, then understand how he does it. A new command I give you, he said in John 13, that you will love one another. Here's the qualifier. Not as the world loves, but the way I have loved you. And how was that? Sacrificial. How much did he sacrifice? Everything. So goodness and love also involve sacrifice. And that's what we see clearly in our verse. So as creatures, particularly fallen ones, as I said, we aren't at liberty neither to define nor declare what goodness, what's good and what's not, what's love and what isn't. You're not loving me right now, really. How have we defined that? He did something bad, really. So that was outside the purview of God being able to use at all. As a matter of fact, God's got to wait now till that bad act. I mean, what what was Joseph's assessment? The end of the story, the last chapter in Genesis, verse 20 of chapter 50. You meant this, speaking to his brother, were his brothers mean to him? See, that's the opposite of good. It's evil. It's evil. It's not just bad. That's like, that's like niceness compared to biblical kindness. We want to redefine these so we can be in lockstep with the culture because that's how the culture's been shaping us after all. We come in here, folks, to get away from that, to see what God has to say, to let God self-declare himself and tell us by way of revelation, please, O Lord, show us what goodness really is because it's nothing but counterfeits all around us. What is love? I 
attempted to take my life in New York City because I concluded there is no such thing because I was immersed in the fake, the deep fake of what the world calls love. We need to understand this or we'll never appreciate this verse that we've all memorized for years. The goodness of God, the love of God, and as we'll see, the purity of God as we go along. So we have to define these things theistically. We can't just go by what our sort of pedestrian concept is about what love is. We should be able to make a pretty good case on the street in the marketplace for what the goodness of God and what the love of God and what the purity of God have for us in terms of holding any kind of meaning of any kind of significance as part of our gospel, as part of our apologetic, we'd better understand who God is or do the best we can to understand. So love is from God. First John four, seven love is from God. He has the source of all love. It comes from him. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world John 129, the Lord is good. Now listen, the Lord, this is Psalm 145. It was read to us this morning very clearly. The Lord is good to how many? To all. Verse 9, and his mercy is over all that he made. That's the sphere. That's the scope. It's everyone who has ever been born physically. God's goodness, his love clearly is extended to all mankind, but they see he's starting. If you want to consider it a starting place after an Adam and Eve's sin, he's starting from a premise of how many were lost, how many are fallen in sin, how many are his dead, blind enemies. Everyone. And we're born that way. We're spiritually stillborn. And we've talked about that quite a bit already. So his love is extended to all mankind. We understand that because all mankind is able to enjoy beautiful weather. They're able to enjoy a productive job. They're able to make a living. They are able to enjoy the restaurants and the recreations and the parks. Raising a family. All these blessings. You think, you'd think that would be enough for all people to say, yes, Lord, I believe Because innately in every human being is implanted the law of God. We understand basic right from wrong. And we know two things. One is that there's something wrong with us. It's a conclusion I came to. I hope all of you did. There's something wrong with us. Not just other people. We're quick to that one, aren't we? No, there's something wrong with me. I don't know what exactly it is, and I don't know exactly what to do about it. But the second thing all human beings know innately is that God will judge. So if there's something wrong with me, and I'm going to stand before Almighty God, who I'd be a fool if I denied His existence, what am I going to say? What will I say exactly? That's the position that the law is trying to get you in. You're right. You can't. You've already offended. You're already doomed. What you need to understand is this blessed gospel that we've been given. 
That's what we need to understand. Barnabas and Paul, remember when they were going through in the first missionary trip, they went through Lystra. Do you remember that crowd (laughs) that were shouting out, this is Hermes and Zeus, right? Remember that? And so they want, what did they want to do? They wanted to start making sacrifices to them. Isn't that interesting? It's interesting that we know innately that a sacrifice must be made. But they're a little off, aren't they? Paul tries to straighten them out. It's really one of his several embarrassing moments, I think, that are a little bit awkward. But in uh, chapter 14, if you remember when we went through Acts, Acts 14, 16 to 18, so Paul's saying to them, he's like, okay, hold on a second. He says this, in past generations, he, God, allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. What grace. All nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Praise the Lord. You haven't been left without a witness. Stop calling me some mythological Romanish God. That's not who we are. God has given you plenty of witness because you've enjoyed your life here. Did you ever think about this? Did, this, did you just show up here? No, the creator God who you innately know exists. He's the one. He's the one you have to answer to. And is he benevolent? Yes, he's benevolent. He just got through saying he's giving you rain so your crops will be productive. All of these things. Don't offend him now. Did they, you remember how they responded? They wanted to sacrifice to them anyway. That's what we're up against, yeah? Yeah. That's what we're up against. You'll give your best rendering of the gospel, go into all of these details, and they'll look at you and just, hmm, I don't know what you're talking about. The self-revelation of God, and I think I have this in there for you, the self-revelation of God, who he is, what he says, what he does, that defines and declares what goodness is. We look at God to know what good is. We look at God, and in that goodness is love. We need to hold these things together. I'm challenging you this morning because you're going to have to hang on to these as we go through. He wants you to hang on to them because they all belong together. We're only looking at three, but they're three that are very the very essence of God. His holiness is not an attribute. His holiness is what he is, and he is love. And he is good. We're not at liberty to to define those things or to, to declare them. See, maybe we need to dial in our gospel a little bit. I don't know. But this is worth looking at. Stephen Charnock, I was, I was mentioning uh, John Frame last week, and I mentioned him just a little while ago. The other massive book, if you're a reader, that would be good to have is uh, Stephen Charnock. Now, he was... Uh, a Puritan. He was in the 1600s. He was actually a colleague of Thomas Watson's for about five years, and he wrote The Existence and Attributes of God. 525 pages long, 145 pages of it are on that one topic of his goodness. But if you want to know these things, and I can, I've got, I, you get like a half a percent of what's 
what's out there in these things to study. Pick up frame, pick up Charnock, borrow somebody's. You can lo- borrow mine if you want and read. I became, it was so compelling to me when I first was reading through Charnock's uh, existence and attributes. I, I, I couldn't come up out of a deep dive into the section on his goodness. It's, it's glorious. It's glorious. You don't have enough time to really go. But here's what, here's what Charnock said. This should give you just a little taste. Goodness is a title only due and properly belonging to the, the supreme being. The goodness of God is the measure and rule of goodness in everything else, end quote. So we aren't at liberty to say that's good, that's bad. That's good, that's bad. It's either good or it's evil, and God defines what that is. It's good. And yes, what they did to you, Joseph, was rankly evil. It was terrible. Judah wanted to kill you. Reuben probably feels good about himself for saying, no, let's... Let's make some money and sell him off in slavery. But that evil that you did, that was part of God's goodness. He used it to save entire nations from starvation during the drought. See, he gets it. He gets it. And and so our perspective becomes so shrunk and shriveled up and pathetic. This goodness of God, this love of God, this purity, Purity is holiness. It's, it's massive. It's massive. It, it, it has no parameters. It's got no limitations, no borders to it. Psalm 52, verse 9, I will wait for your name. Whenever it says the name of God, I'll wait for your name. It means the entirety of who God is. All that comprises the Godhead, I'm going to wait for him. Why? For or because it is good. Now, we've been so watered down in our understanding of that word, we've, we've lost the impact of that verse, haven't we? We really have. Let's let him define what that is, since it's, it's part of the supreme being, as Charnock said, it's part of his essence. It's who he is. Love, then, we had said goodness is a state of his being or his nature, his essence, but love is as well. Love is a state of being or nature. Now this is, now we're getting into some, the outworking of things. Hopefully if that was a little too abstract for you, hang on to it, hang on to it, look into it further, but you have to take that with you as you go into looking at the love of God, which is also his essence, because here's just a couple of things. This nature being his nature, it generates at least two things that we need to talk about for a minute. And that is affection and attention. Okay. Attention. I'm sorry, affection and attraction. All right. So in other words, you have out of that attraction, if you, if you love something or someone, you want to be near it. You have a desire for nearness. That was something two years ago that I, I was fascinated on that one concept, the nearness of God, the closeness. Where does that come from? It comes from his love. He has an affection there. It, it, this affection that he has that creates this attraction to the object of his love. What happened when we sinned? How far apart? 
Well, read Isaiah 59, verse 2. For your sin has done what? Separated you from, from God. Immediately. He wants that back. It's a reclamation project. You belong to me. We've talked about, about that most intimate, powerful, personal word that we belong to him. We lost it ourselves. He's coming to gain it. He wants it back. So Psalm 73 verse 28 says, As for me, the psalmist writes, the nearness of God is my good. You see how the two go together? I don't want to be near what you've appointed me to go through. And you're walking away from me. I've given you no way out but up. Why? Because then you'll draw close to me. You'll need me. You didn't before. Not as much as I need you or want you to need me. Better stated. You wouldn't come. I turned up the heat. But that brought you to me. Exodus 29:45 I the Lord is saying I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. Revelation 21 verse 3 and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying behold the dwelling place of God is what with man. There's a reason he created us in his image and likeness. You know what struck me in the study is Wait a second. There's a whole lot of this that the angels don't get. There's one creation of God, and angels are created beings, right? There's one creation of God that bears his image and likeness, and those within the Godhead love one another perfectly, yeah? And so he expects to have that with those that bear his image. And when we do that, if that's even possible in Christ, we glorify him. I want that back because I love you. We cheapen love. We water it down. We make it filled with sentimentalities and gook. We need to purge ourselves of that. The nearness of God is my good. This is where God wants to dwell. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Praise the Lord. Amen. Praise God. So goodness is a state of his being or his nature or his essence. So is love. Part of his being is Nature, his essence. And so I mentioned his purity. His purity has to be taken into consideration when you're looking at his goodness and his love. Now watch this. Psalm 101, verse 6. I will look with favor on the faithful in the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me, shall be close to me ministered to me with their love. Blameless. Okay, who does that let out? Might I construe your silence 
as a confession to say, all of us? Yeah. What are we going to do? What we're going to do is we're going to read John 3.16 with haste, with fervor. Rejoice in believing that not the way we wanted to believe it, but the way it's prevented, presented rather in its fullness in God's declaration in the scripture, right? Isaiah 57 verse 15, for thus the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, holy is all that he is, all pure, all holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him. Remember, he wants to dwell with us. With who? With him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So that means I've understood my sin And I'm in a state of brokenness, coming to God, looking to his son for the propitiation of my sins, for forgiveness. That's who's in his tent. That's who he dwells with. Love. When its object is distant, is love in a state of longing. Love, when its object is near, is love in a state of indulgence. That's what he wants. That distance has been bridged, hasn't it? That gap has shrunk to nothing in Christ. Because no longer does he want the object of his love to be at a distance. And the only way to come near is to, in brokenness to confess our sins and seek Christ for God's satisfaction. That's the point. So God desires to be near mankind. Therefore, love is always concerned with the purity of its object. If a young man says to a young woman that he's trying to date, I love you. He will be most concerned for the purity of the object of his stated love. Yeah? Is that what all young men are interested in? Remember benevolence. I am most interested in this other person's happiness, prosperity, and well-being. And so love desires to be near and close to the object of my love. And so purity, if I'm going to love the way God loves, it must be pure. I must be interested in the purity of the object of my love or I am not loving them. And so love spurs us on when we see inconsistencies with each other that violate this whole idea, the the definition of what love is. Because we're concerned about the purity of the other person that we love in Christ. You see that? It all begins to come together. So love's always concerned with the purity of the object of our love. Why? Because God is holy. And that's how he draws us near. you, You can't take that which is soiled, that which is sullied, polluted, corrupted 
and put it in the presence of a holy God, what would happen to such a being? They'd be vaporized. I was very intrigued by the prodigal son. The prodigal son's return. Walk through this with me in, the, in, in view of all we're talking about here. See if these things don't come together. Luke 15, 17 to 20. So this is his return, all right? We don't have time for the whole story. You're familiar with it. He leaves his father, takes his inheritance, and squanders it, regrets it. He comes back. Get the geographical component. Don't miss the story. Don't, get, don't miss the metaphor. Watch. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, this is the prodigal. He's like, this, this, is, this was stupid. It was dumb. The consequences of his poor choices, his sinful choices, his selfish choices have brought him into a pigsty, literally. And he reflects, he says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here without hunger. I will arise and go to my father. Do you get the nearness of love? Do you, do you get the benevolence is reflected on by the son when he's thinking about even the sermons are being taken care of by my father? That's benevolence, folks. And this is nearness. Pull it all together. Keep it with you through this story. I will arise and go to my father. He discovers that he actually loves his father because his father is one who is a father who by his very essence and being is benevolent. He remembers that. I don't remember my father doing anything but for my servants, he's reflecting on. He fed his own servants well. He treated them well. That's benevolence. He remembers that. He reflects on that. And he says he's filled with love. He's filled with regret and remorse. He wants to, he wants to repent. He wants forgiveness. And he has to be near him to do that. Why do you think God put us in this context? of a space-time continuum of physical bodies. He's seeing what we do with that. What has COVID done to that? Split us all up. We're not, we don't do well when we're alone in terms of our thought life, thinking about other people. Ooh. We need to be together. Some of the sweetest fellowship I had was yesterday cutting down a tree with my brothers. It's hard to explain why that happens, but this is why. This is why. The nearness of God is my good. This son wants to go be with his father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. So there's your confession, right? Here's the bridge come being built through the gospel. I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. There's the contrition. There's the brokenness. Now he can come into the father's tent. Now he can dwell with him. He goes on, treat me as one of your hired servants. I don't deserve all what you gave me. Just let me be with the servants. That will be my good. That's good enough. I don't deserve anything more than that. And after recognizing the loving benevolence of his father, he arose and came to his father. We don't do this over text. We don't do this over Zoom. He went to his father. 
He recognizes the goodness of his father, his benevolence, his love. It's together. You can't pull those apart, can you? But the purity of them. No, if you want to do what you want to do, you can't be with me. It's, it's, it's not a judgment because I've got sour grapes. Son, it's because this love is pure. It's a pure love. You want to squander your life, your inheritance on yourself. You can't be here. And it's bringing him together. He rose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, what did his father do? He saw him. Did chew him out? Rebuke him? He saw him and felt compassion. And he ran. A good, dignified Hebrew man of his kind of standing doesn't run for anything. They didn't even show their ankles. He ran to him. He ran to him. He embraced him. And he kissed him. That's pretty close, isn't it? That's real close. I think that's why a lot of people like to hug. It's an affectionate thing. It's an issue of, of closeness. Lamentations 3, 25 and 26, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him, like the prodigal. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It's that salvation that makes the bridge. It's the confession. Hebrews 10, 22, let us draw near. Now perhaps we have a little bit deeper appreciation for what that's meaning, what, that, what that's indicating. Let us draw near with a true heart, with a sincere heart, a pure heart, in full assurance of faith. Lord, I believe. Okay, here we've got a bridge now. Now we can draw you in, draw you close. With our hearts sprinkled clean. It must be made clean. The purity is not something he can avoid. We can't just dismiss that as some lesser attribute of God's, as if there is such a thing. From an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. James 4.8 says it probably most succinctly. You're very familiar with it. Draw near to God and he will. That's what we see with the prodigal. If you forsake God, he will what? forsake you he's he's given his son for this we just sang this in that powerful song the love of god cleanse your hands you sinners purify your hearts you double-minded okay that's the introduction Point number three, the sacrifice of God's love. Now, hopefully, we can go in with a greater appreciation of how much God gave to make it possible for us to dwell with him, for us to have that nearness reestablished with him so we can enjoy, like no other gods of all of the false religions, the imminence of God while he is at the same time transcendent from us. This, that he gave his only son, only son, Monogenes, this is his only son. This is the only one that he has. It's one of a kind. It's the one and only. In verse 18, it says the only son of God. 
In John 1.14, if you remember, he says it this way, the only Son from the Father. Uh, my favorite is Colossians 1.13 that says, the Son of His love. That's its literal rendering. The Son of His love. I'm going to give Him to it, to His erring child. He will reconcile and pardon Him from His sin. Oh, love of God. God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong it will forever endure. The saints and angels song. Brother, you can sing that every week. Maybe I should just record it so we can play it every week. That is so powerful. But we need to understand something here as we're looking at this from Scripture, that this is not our sacrifices. See, that's what Nicodemus misunderstood. It's not our sacrifices. It's his sacrifice. So it's not all of the things that we do. Isaiah 53, 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So you can see this love is not based on some sentimental feelings. Not at all. Not biblical love. Not, not theological. Not God's love. It's a love that cost him something. It, it's, it, it's a love that cost him the most dear possession thing, person in his, in his existence, and that is his only son. And it's to cost us the thing most dear to us. What is that? Your heart. But see, when it comes to essence and being, that's everything that makes up who you are. He wants how much of it? All or nothing at all. I think that's another song, isn't it? He wants it all. He wants it all. For I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. Hosea 6 6. This is Old Testament. I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. What did they do with that verse back then? They knew this verse. And others like it. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offering, because that is an intimate knowledge, an intimate epignosis. That is a close, intimate, powerful knowledge. That's what he wants, not your burnt offerings. So it was out of God's goodness, out of his love, that he provided the world with this one-time sacrifice, which is the thing most dear to him that is his son. And the requirement that we believe but that means we give him the essence of who we are. He takes that and he gives us an entire new nature. Not one that's self-focused, but one that is Godward focused. One that has affections for Jesus Christ. One that wants to continue following him as long as we're on this earth. You will not delight 
This is Psalm 51:16. You will not delight in sacrifice. David gets it now, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. Paul says at the Areopagus, God cannot be served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Hebrews 10, verse 1, For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come, instead of the true form of the realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The priest isn't going to do it. The supplicant is not going to do it. The one who continues to make his or her sacrifices A sacrifice has been given. A final sacrifice has been made. God gave His Son. What more could we expect Him to give when we deserve nothing? Hebrews 10.14, For by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Four, and finally, the surety of God's love. And we finish with this. All of this is to make us sure. A surety is being certain of something. It's being certain. It's being sure that I belong to Him. Here's where we get the sureness. The end of verse 16, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 17 and 18, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name, in the all of who God is in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus said in John 4, 12, 47, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to what? Save the world. John 5, 45 to 47, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. And this... There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. He should have said this part in chapter 3 to Nicodemus, right? Verse 46, if you believed Moses, you would have believed me. That would have really gotten Nicodemus' attention, wouldn't it? For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe in his writings, how will you believe my words? If you didn't see these things as types and shadows of things that you can't possibly fulfill yourself, if you didn't know and have confidence that the living God, a God who proclaims, I am God and I am God who is your Savior, there is no other. If you didn't understand that, perhaps now you will, because here I am in the flesh. If you would have believed Moses the way you should have believed Moses, you would have believed me because he spoke of me. He opened the scriptures to the men on the road uh, to Emmaus. Yeah. And he 
opened the scriptures, remember? And through the entirety of the scriptures, through the prophets and all, he proclaimed himself. Their folly, that's in the Sermon on the Mount. You, you scribes, you Pharisees, you hypocrites, you look through the scriptures because you think in them are eternal life, but it is they that speak of, of me, and I'm here. That's it. Just believe. And when we do, we're sure. First John 2, verse 2, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So let me finish with Romans 8, 1 to 4, which is, this is where we need to land. This is what we need to embrace. If, in fact, we have said, Lord, I believe, I believe, I understand my sin, I understand my need for that God would be satisfied, but I can't do it. I need a Savior. And when we believe, here's what we hear. Romans 8, 1 to 4. There is, therefore, now what? No condemnation for who? For those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. In these words, in understanding God's goodness, his love and purity, Understanding, therefore, in a greater depth why we had a need for such a God to be the only one who could save us from our predicament. Our eternal destiny hangs in the balance and all we are compelled to do by Scripture is simply what? Believe. I call upon you to do that. Because one thing I can be certain of, though I'm not omniscient, is there is no one in this room, nor has there ever been, even the man standing up here talking, that is not a sinner. Consider these things, and let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the clarity of the Scripture, for the fullness of your goodness, of your love, and of your purity. Thank you, O Lord, for these great truths. May we understand them in a greater depth and come to you now to seek forgiveness for our sins that we might be able to draw near to you and experience the goodness and the benevolence of our great God and Savior. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.